Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. As always, thank you so very, very much for listening. My name is Robert Winfrey, and I'm your host. On the agenda tonight, well, let's see. UFC on ABC3. Uh, we'll go over that. You know, there was a pretty darn good card on paper and in practice. Well, I can't spoil everything before you get into it. You're listening to the show. So we'll go over that. Uh, preview. This coming UFC event Saturday. Another early-er morning card. Not quite as early as this one. But the UFC will be back in London for UFC on ESPN Plus 66. So we will have a preview of that card. And news. We got some match made. Some matches being made. Dana White causing a bit of a stir, as he is wont to do on occasion. And, you know, news of the week. So... Alright, before we get into it, let me do my usual reminder, please interact with the product a little bit. Like, comment, subscribe, written review, star rating. If you've done any and all of that, share. Let people know about the show. Best thing you can do to help us out, and I always appreciate everything you guys do to help. So, thank you very much, as always. Alright. Let's jump in. UFC on ABC3. This started at 11 a.m. Eastern, the early prelims. 9 a.m. for me, which, never pleasant. I'm not a morning person and never have been. I've been waking up earlier and earlier, though, in my old age. Old age. I'm not old, old, but, you know. I have I've been waking up earlier lately. It freaks me out a little bit. But your main event... You know, before I talk about the main event in particular, I'm just going to say... The card top to bottom was pretty strong. Uh, yeah, it was quite strong, actually. I think it's been noted by plenty of people, but I'm going to reiterate it here. We've now entered a phase where there's essentially three tiers of UFC events. For a long time, it was essentially only pay-per-views. Then they started getting some television shows, and there were more... If you... Boy, if you were not around in the era when the UFC ran (laughs) one pay-per-view a month and maybe one fight night a month as well, something like that. You know, the fight nights were fairly far apart. If you have only been a fan during the era of the machine every week, uh, you will, you might not believe, you know, some of we used to look forward to fight nights because you were, you'd have, you know, a month, sometimes more between pay-per-view events. And that's, that's just where the UFC was broadcast wise and whatnot. So when they started getting more, a little bit more television time, they could put on fight nights. You, you could get quality fight night events. In fact, you you frequently would. You wouldn't. You would very very rarely. I mean, I can't say would never, but very rarely you get a title fight. Very rarely. You get you know number one contender fights. Uh, you, the UFC product had not quite been uh, diminished to the point that it is like watered down. Then again, when they started running every week which they've been doing basically every week for, you know, the last, I don't know, five years, give or take. Probably longer than that, actually. Going back to the Fox deal, they weren't quite every week on Fox. for the They weren't quite every week on Fox for the entire duration of their time on Fox. But fairly quickly into that deal, it became, again, every week, more or less. And they've been running like that, you know, again, for years at this years and years at this point. Uh... 
you started to see a sort of unofficial divide, and you had to maybe have a discerning eye in some cases, but it was still true. Pay-per-views, they always, not all, they always tried to provide a quality pay-per-view card. Didn't always succeed. I mean, there was, for crying out loud, they headlined one event with... Oh, was it like Dan Henderson and Rashad Evans main evented a pay-per-view at one point? They're, they were so desperate. I remember the I remember the like uh, commercials for that event. I was like, hey, our top like three fights. Boy, these guys have such great knockout power. If we go back to their entire history in the sport, and then you look at, like what they've done for the last few fights. Like, no, Roy Nelson's probably not finishing anybody. Neither's the guy he's fighting. You know, Henderson and Evan. No, probably not. Nope. And it, it was comical. Like, now that event was a little bit cursed. They had so many fights fall out. So I'm not. It wasn't even. It wasn't great to begin with, but I think the original main event had some merit. So point there. They they weren't always successful in getting a great pay per view, but they would try. And you had kind of this. You know, if you watched enough and you knew enough people, and at this point I had watched enough and knew enough people. <laughs> like, okay, not all fight nights are created equal. They used to be more or less commensurate. The variation in quality on paper was not that big. There was some, but it wasn't huge. You know, like, uh, okay, the only, the the different, the big difference there was occasionally when they tried to do Fight Pass exclusive stuff, like those were kind of third tier, and the Ultimate Fighter finale cards were always just like the bottom of the barrel. Like, God, no one cared. And most of those events were just not very good. They were badly paced, they had a bunch of fights that you didn't care about, like it was just, it, was, it wasn't good. With the current setup of the UFC, though, we've you can kind of divide these things into three fairly distinct classes. You have pay-per-view cards at the top. Then fight nights have a very again a very clear line between them. If the UFC is running an event at the apex, they don't care about quality. That doesn't mean they all suck. Let me, let me be very clear with what I'm about to say here. That doesn't mean they all suck. Some of them are good. I mean, we had you know, Dos Anjos and Fiz last week. Yeah, that was at the Apex. And you know, we had Dos Anjos and Fizia you know, two weeks ago. Uh, yeah, about. I mean, that was a fine card. It wasn't, you know, great, but it, there's nothing really wrong with it. You know, it was a, you know, perfectly serviceable, but. The UFC is extremely aware of when they have to sell tickets. Now, there are limited tickets available to the Apex. Some of those get comped to main event fighters. Some of them are for sale and they're exorbitant. But they don't need a name to sell tickets if you're if you're buying a ticket for the Apex events. One, you probably know someone. Two, you're, you know, God bless you, you are a very hardcore fan. You're going for the intimate experience and for kind of the exclusivity. So you don't really care, the UFC doesn't really care, who's main eventing those cards. People are paying through the nose for them. So yeah, here's your main event, Rafael dos Anjos and Rafael Fiziev. That's a fine fight. And I enjoyed that fight. Like I'm not dogging that fight or that event. I'm using it as an example. That was not a strong card top to bottom, and it would not have sold all that well if you had to put it on a poster and go, hey, please come see this in droves. So they they put on these, you know, lower tier cards at the Apex. 
you, they try to have a main event that's relevant always. But how many times, and given that I write up you know pre-fight blurbs and whatnot for everything, I know this. Most of those Apex cards are populated with fighters who are coming off the Contender Series. So you have debutantes, or you have people with like one and one, or zero oh and two, or zero oh and three in some cases records in the UFC. That's the majority of people that fight at the Apex right now. When they have to take a fight night on the road and sell tickets, you get something of a higher quality on paper, something like last night's card. So there's we've got that uh, we now have like those kind of pretty clear three tiers going on. Again, minor exception for main events because the main events at the Apex they try to they try to have at least one or two fights there per event that at least kind of justify like hey this fight matters you know that, because there's a lot on those that don't and to the consumer to the average fight fan most of the fights on the Apex uh, on those fight nights at the Apex they don't matter that much so they try to find at least one that does. But we so they brought a good card to this event. Uh, this took place in on Long Island in Elmont, New York, at the UBS Arena. Okay, I assume that used to be something else. Everything's getting renamed. Uh, no, actually, it it's new. Sort of new. It is functionally replacing, I think, both the Nassau Coliseum. Uh, yeah, it's kind of replacing, it's the new home of the Islanders, and, you know, hockey's a, if you're into hockey, it's a, you know, it's a big deal, so, it's kind of a new, it's a newer area, I guess, they didn't just take an existing, someone did not buy an existing arena and just rename it, so. And they had pretty good attendance, 16, reported attendance of 16,979, uh, that's not bad. Anyway, that's enough. To, uh, so the card in general was quite strong, but the main event, I, I say all that to say the following about the main event. Yair Rodriguez defeats Brian Ortega via shoulder injury, 4-11 of the first round. Deeply unfortunate. Um, the fight was competitive to the up until the end. It was a competitive fight. I think Rodriguez was getting the better of the round. Uh, in fact, if you ask me to score the round up everything prior to the end of the fight, it's a 10-9 Rodriguez. It's not, it's not a dominant performance out of Yair, but we're talking about one round of a five-round fight. Both guys have five-round experience. There's, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's a very, very small window into the, into the entire proceedings. And you can only extrapolate so much from that. So I'm, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about how I think these two might match up if they rematch. Uh, this is, there's a very limited amount of new information gained from this first round. It, the fight was going more or less how I think we kind of expected, right? A lot of movement from Yair. He's, uh, throwing kicks, trying to stick and move, doesn't want to get tied up. Ortega taking some hits, but landing some good punches. Like he, he gave us, he didn't quite get the volume that Yair did, but he was landing solid blows. Uh, you know, Ortega was able to force some clinches, uh, got a nice takedown near the end. Yair tried to roll for an armbar, which is what he does. It's one of the things he does when he does get taken down. He tries to initiate big actions quickly to facilitate a scramble so he doesn't have to be down there very long. 
people who have been able to control him on the mat, like they take that away from him. But watch, he, he likes to do that. He likes to just go after something. So he went after an armbar. And it wasn't that close as far as armbars go. Like, it was there, but the elbow, the arm was not that extended. He didn't have great control over the wrist. His legs were kind of around the arm the way they need to be, but I don't even think it was really over the face the way you'd want to be to kind of leverage somebody back. So, it. That is to say that. I, I don't say that to dump on Rodriguez's armbar. I say that so that you understand what happens is Ortega is aware of the armbar attack. He's a very good jiu-jitsu practitioner. And he starts... He knows he's not in... He's... say this. He is not in imminent danger of being finished. There is a threat. And he goes to pull his arm out. Like you do. And in the course of pulling it out, the shoulder popped out. Except he... He gets his arm free, and then immediately kind of drops back, and it almost looks like he's dropping back for a leg attack. That, that was kind of my first thought when he fell back, because one of Rodriguez's legs was in position to be attacked, but he just kind of drops back and points at his shoulder to uh, the ref and Rodriguez and whatnot, and yeah, just when he was removing his arm from the armbar attempt, the shoulder separated. Uh, and... I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. Because there's a contingent of people who have kind of... In the aftermath of this, the discussion has once again reared its ugly head. Well, do we go with Josh Emmett or Yair Rodriguez? And people arguing about this. You know, people... Well, no, Josh Emmett didn't really beat Calvin Cater. Yes, he did. You can think Calvin Cater won. I did. I believe I, I scored that for Cater. But Emmett won the fight. Close fight. And like I said, if you scored it for Cater, I don't dis I agree with you, but there's nothing wrong with scoring it for Emmett, and he won the fight fairly. There was no... When I say chicanery, I mean in the legal sense in this instance. No one was bribed. There was no malfeasance. It was a close fight that went his way. Happens all the time. And then you've got the people here going, yeah, well, should Rodriguez really be credited with a win? Yes. Yes, he should. Look, he was not... It's not an instance where the submission applied had the intended effect which injured, which injured the other guy. It is the case that his what he was doing offensively in his attack caused was, was a key contributor of the injury. To say nothing of the fact that that doesn't actually matter, if you injure yourself, you still get... Like, this still happens. You know, uh... You, I mean, uh, well, what, like a couple of months ago, we had Rakic and Blahovich, right? Rakic blows his knee out because apparently he was dealing with a minor injury already, and then it just, as he stepped on it, a little bit wrong, if if you've got small issues with, especially your, you know, ace, the ligaments in your knee, you step wrong on those things, and small tear suddenly explodes. That's kind of how that happens. Jan Blahovich did nothing to affect that near as I could tell like I'm sure when I say that like of course being in a fight with Jan Blahovich you know he wouldn't have been stepping the way that he was if he wasn't fighting like when I say he did nothing to in to affect that he did not attack the knee at all this was not you know didn't blow out on a double leg or trying to defend one didn't it wasn't a devastating leg kick wasn't nothing 
just in open space. Rakic moving around. Steps wrong. Knee goes out. We're done. Did Blahovic not deserve a win? I mean, I don't have a problem with him getting that win. Uh, I don't have a problem with Rodriguez getting the win here. You know, this, the only time you would award a no contest in this kind of scenario is if the injury is caused by something like external to the fight. Right? You start fighting, you accept the risk of injury at any point in time for any reason. For any reasonable reason. You know, if if you've got like a badly secured cage and one of the panels falls off as you're clinching against it and somebody falls out and cracks their head and like can't continue, okay. Equipment failure. Sure. Or if there's a foul involved. There was no foul here. Like there, there's no reason for Rodriguez not to get the win in this fight. None. These are you may not like that that's kind of the policy, but it is the policy in these circumstances. You just, that's why you list it as an injury, you know? So we're kind of, the point being, we're kind of back to, as far as going forward, well, let me finish my thoughts on the fight, I suppose, such as they were. I, said, I, I thought Rodriguez was winning the round. Not big, but enough for me to say that fairly confidently. That doesn't mean Ortega was out of this fight. He was not getting bludgeoned. He was not getting battered. You know, it, was, it was nothing like that. This was not domination by Yair Rodriguez. He was winning the round. And that's certainly important, and I'm not... I, that's just to say... That phrase a lot. need to stop that. Rodriguez was... He did not luck out and have, you know, some freak injury stop a guy who was beating him. He was winning the round. And, you know, again, the fight was going as anticipated. Would it have, you know, what would have changed if they'd been able to continue? Would, you know, would Rodriguez have continued to win rounds and win a decision? Maybe. Would he have found a devastating strike and seriously hurt Ortega? Maybe. Ortega's got a chin on him, though, man. He had some serious punches from Rodriguez here and just was not moved. If As the fight wore on, would Ortega's kind of dogged attack and body work, and he had some good body work, would that have slowed Rodriguez down and let Ortega take over? Maybe. Would, or, would Rodriguez have made a mistake in close proximity and Ortega jumps on a submission? Entirely possible. It, there's not enough evidence coming out of this fight the way it played out to make a conclusion about how this fight would have gone had it continued or objectively really who's the better fighter uh, in case you want to argue for a rematch I don't think an immediate rematch because we don't know what's up with Ortega as far as you know, recovery potential and whatnot but I would not hate a rematch at some point because it's not like either guy was beating the crap out of the other one and then there's no cause for a rematch so, going forward, let me talk about Yair first. So, I mentioned we've got kind of the argument now, well, should it be, should the title shot, theoretical title shot, go to Josh Emmett or Yair Rodriguez? And people in both camps are making arguments. If what we're talking about is purely the meritocracy argument, the answer is Josh Emmett. He has a longer winning streak and he's beaten better guys. Full stop. This is Yair Rodriguez's best win, and while it is while I don't object to him getting the win, it does you do have to throw on the caveat it was injury related and kind of a almost freak not completely freak way, but 
when your best win comes in this way, you know, it's it. I feel bad for Rodriguez, actually, in some respects, because that guy, much as I have not been a big fan of his and not a big believer in some of his abilities, which I've kind of documented at various points. When he's been in position to kind of have some of these more definitive moments. There seems to be this, you know, cloud over it. You know, he was in the main event of a show in Mexico City against Jeremy Stevens. That was, you know, going to be his big showcase. And he might have, could very well have won. Then, in the course of that fight, you know, he pokes Jeremy Stevens in the eye accidentally, but he still did it. And Stevens literally could not open his eye. They, I believe they, I'd have to double check this, but I'm pretty sure, like, he got the full five minutes to try and recover. And after five minutes, his eye, the muscles around his eye were still spasming so hard, he physically could not open his eye. There's nothing to be done about that. You have to wave the fight off. Uh, and it that sucked for him, man. That sucked for Rodriguez. Because that was going to be kind of his big moment. So they rebooked the fight. He wins a decision. He still drops the third round in that fight, if memory serves. There's, I mean, his first big shot in the UF, his first big step, I'm like, hey, you know, old Frankie Edgar might be on his way out. And bear in mind, this was, how many years ago was this now, for the record? Back in 2017, like, yeah, Frankie might be on his way out. Here's a young guy, he just stopped BJ Penn. And Frankie Edgar beats the crap out of him. Uh, that fight had to be stopped between the second and third rounds. Frankie messed up. Uh, Rodriguez's, I forget which eye, I think it was his right. His left? One of his eyes, just completely swollen shut. Frankie mangled him. I mean, his best, his best performance might actually be the loss to Max Holloway. That was one of the most complete and composed performances out of I've seen of Rodriguez. His best win is the shoulder injury here. That he's just in this weird spot like that, and it, it does just kind of suck. Because some of this is not his fault. <laughs> Uh, you know, the fouling to Stevens, you know, accidental foul, but, you know, a little more discipline might have helped. Here, it's not his fault that Ortega's shoulder fell apart at all. But that's kind of going to be the talking point coming out of it, so I don't know. Uh, with Volkanovsky needing surgery on his thumb, I think the best course of action would just be Rodriguez versus Emmett. There's no debate after that. Whoever wins that fight more, like, there, again, there is no debate. Uh, well, so, sorry, I, I made the point about Emmett has the meritocratic argument. The argument for Rodriguez is as follows, and it is not insubstantial in the real world. So, he is an exciting fighter. Uh, to a lot of people, not necessarily to me, but this is his rep. He's an exciting fighter. He's younger than Emmett. He has more upside in that respect. He represents more to a demographic that the UFC covets more. The UFC still would like to kind of continue making inroads into Mexico, in particular. And, I mean, they keep trying. And it's been kind of a hard road. <laughs> it's been a hard road for them to really kind of crack into that market. I mean, partially... This is where some of the UFC's animosity towards boxing for years and years and years bites them a little bit. Like you, you, you were antagonistic towards a sport that has giant cultural footprints all over the world. 
and now you're trying to undo some of that damage. Uh, it, it doesn't help that, again, when they finally do get a a fighter that has some kind of, uh, you know, Mexican in particular, I, I say Mexican because that's the... It's not that they don't want to make inroads into, you know, Central America or more Spanish-speaking South America, but there's a, you know, a lot of the country, a lot of the Central American countries are very small. Some of them are a little more unstable than others, uh, politically and whatnot. And Mexico is large, has a large population, has a large population that cares a lot about combat sports, specifically boxing, and is geograph is in geographic proximity to where the UFC runs the majority of their events. Like they want to kind of crack that market, and you know they tried with Kane and that mixed success at best. Uh, then you you finally get uh, get Brandon. Am I blanking on his name? Oh, I am embarrassed. Uh, Moreno. God, I suck. They get Brandon Moreno. He he breaks. He has a great fight with Figueredo to a draw. Then he breaks through and wins the belt. They give him, you know, the um, they start giving him the push. You know, they he they start featuring him in uh, the, the Modelo commercials. Featured him on occasion. He did some of the other against the other commercials and whatnot. And then he immediately loses it in his first title defense. <laughs> so they keep trying. And Yaya Rodriguez represents a uh, represents that to them, and that carries weight. Sometimes the got you. Know, sometimes you know the John Fitchers of the world get screwed over because they don't have a big fan base or they don't represent anything to a market that the UFC covets, so they get kind of screwed on occasion. And Emmett Emmett does not fight like John Fitch. So when I say you know the John Fitchers of the world, I don't mean that Emmett's this fighter who, while able to win consistently, is not terribly exciting. Emmett's not a boring fighter. Uh, but he's gonna get passed over if the UFC feels they can reasonably do so. And he's pissed about it, and Uriah Faber was pissed about it. And Uriah Faber, being upset about someone for their potential star value getting preferential treatment is the height of hypocrisy, for the record. Emmett should be pissed. Again, if we're just talking merit meritocracy, longer winning streak, better winning streak, better quality of opposition, Emmett has all that. But the UFC is not a pure meritocracy. And Yair Rodriguez, uh, they like him. That's an oversimplification of all the various factors, but that's how I'm going to phrase it. If Volkanovski was in position to have a title defense towards the end of the year, like if we had to turn this over relatively quickly, uh, I don't know. I don't know which way they'd go. Volkanovski's injury to his thumb, that's going to require surgery. Uh, again, we don't know the specifics of his timetable, recovery rates, etc., etc. So there's, there's some unknowns there, but it does make it somewhat easier, logistically, to... Uh, Assuming that Josh Emmett has a fast enough recovery from his fight with Cater, which was not easy on him physically at all, you could just do Emmett and Rodriguez, and there is no more argument. Winner of that fight is the number one contender, full stop. And when parachutes in, and there's not really a big enough name to do so anyway. Sorry, Henry Cejudo, you are not a big enough name. 
Uh, you know, Connor's not coming back to 145. You know, th there's there's not really any of that. Winner of a theoretical fight between Rodriguez and Emmett is full stop your number one contender. Uh, speaking of Ortega, very, to the other side of this equation very briefly, he mentioned that he's had surgery on that shoulder a couple of times. Now, he said he's had you know, two shoulder surgeries. I don't know if he's had one on each or both on the same one. But he did have a labrum tear in that, in, I believe, the one that fell out here. Labrum tears can be very tricky. I'm Now, I'm not a doctor. So, what I'm about to say is purely polemic in the sense that I have looked up what other people have said about this. Some of them... Some of the, uh, you know, the usual crop of people on YouTube, there's, there's like fight doctors and whatnot, or people, doctors on YouTube who analyze injury uh, to the extent that they can via video. So, li listen to some of them, listen to athletes and other people who have had similar injuries. Uh, that's not good. It's really not good. You know, your shoulder, your shoulder joint is a tricky one. Uh, I mean, so is your hip joint, because they're, they're both ball and socket joints. You know, hinge joints are easier. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't have you know, stuff in there that can get seriously messed up. You know, your knee's a hinge joint. And you know, talk to people who screwed up any, any of the ligaments and whatnot in their knees. Like that, that still will mess you up. But it's a relative... With modern medicine, qualify that, with you know, modern best practices, recovering from an ACL or an MCL uh, injury, or even, there's people now who compete after Achilles injuries that would have easily ended athletic careers, not that, in living memory, would have easily ended them. Or, it's not at all uncommon to have an ACL repaired, it sucks while you're rehabbing it, but you don't really have long-term recurring problems. Now, this is contingent on a few different things. Again, proper rehab, surgery not being complicated. But you can build that back up without too much, without, without aberrant levels of difficulty. If your ball and socket joints are a little bit different. If those get messed up, uh, that can be really hard to come back from. You know, um, I mean, you know, what ended the, the athletic career, essentially, of Bo Jackson? He temporarily dislocated one of his hips, uh, the, the femur at the top. Uh, and that man's one of the... If you're not familiar with what Bo Jackson was capable of in a purely athletic capacity... Uh, feel free to look up the You Don't Know Bo ES, uh, 30 for 30 documentary or you know, any of like, When I say freak athlete, like I mean that as a compliment. Freak athlete. And an injury to his hip ended it. Now, there was, again, there's some complications there. It wasn't just the dislocation and then reattachment, like, again, stuff. But That'll do that to you. Shoulders are similar. They're they are finicky. Uh, I mean, Luke Thomas, since we're in the MMA space, Luke Thomas talks about has talked about this for a while actually. That you know he had a shoulder injury, a torn labrum, and 
his shoulder would like occasionally fall out of its socket in his sleep after he got it repaired. Like or before. I think it was yeah, I think it was after. Uh It's just one of those joints that if once that integrity is compromised, if it doesn't get fixed correctly quickly or the first time, uh, that that integrity might not ever come back. So I I hope that's not what we're seeing with Ortega, uh, partially for his fighting career. I mean, selfishly, because I like watching the guys fights. But, you know, quality of life wise. That can have lifelong health ramifications. So I hope he gets that fixed and I hope it gets fixed properly. Uh, again, for his life more than uh, more than his career in most respects. All right. That took a while, so the rest of these shouldn't take quite as long. Co-main event, Amanda Lemos defeats Michelle Watterson Gomez. Apparently she's hyphenating now. I, fine. I, I say that as a note. <laughs> Uh, guillotine choke, 148 of the second. This went basically as expected. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Michelle Watterson. She's been around for a long time, but... Uh, I don't know. It feels like things have passed her by at this point. Right, solid win for Lemos to bounce back after that loss to Jessica Andrade. Uh, she's, Lemos is still a very, very good strawweight. Uh, People are, a lot of people may not necessarily be aware of her, but she's probably the second hardest puncher in that division behind the aforementioned Jessica Andrade. Like, that woman has power. She's a big, uh, Lemos is big for the weight class. Like it, she's a straw weight to pay attention to. Uh, welterweight, Li Jing Liang defeats Muslim Salikov via TKO, punches, elbows, uh, 438 of the second. Nice performance out of Li. Used a pretty good jab to kind of shut down Salik a lot of Salikov's offense, uh, disrupt the distance. Uh, really nice finishing sequence. Uh, Li Jing Liang, I think, is a guy who gets slept on a lot. He's had some issues with activity at various points in his career. He's had some losses at various points that have kind of taken a bit of the shine off of him. I mean, he was beating Keita Nakamura, and then he got, before getting choked out in the third, went on a good winning streak, and then had that loss to Jake Matthews, where he cheated horribly, like, the eye gouge that he did there. Uh, oof. That was, that was nasty. It's a nasty eye gouge. Uh, and then, and then lost anyway, so again, some of the shine goes away. Goes back on a winning streak and then fights Neil Magny and loses a decision. He rebounds, beats Ponzinibbio, then he gets runs over by Kamzat Shemaev. So at times he's had been a little bit up and down, but he's a very good fighter. I mean, activity has been kind of his issue at various times. He only had one fight in 2019, only one in 2020. Fought twice last year, but you know, for a guy who's been in the UFC since 2014, what does he do? Twice in 14, twice in 15, once in 16, three times in 17, three times in 18. So, again, at times he's been busier. But, you know, injuries at various points, uh, you know, the pandemic. Uh, if he's able to really kind of, to, he seems to be, uh, to have really figured out his game for the most part. You know, I mean, Shemaev just kind of baited him into planting and swinging and then ducked under him and then just, 
smashed him from there. But he's a pretty good fighter. Uh, he, he's a ranked welterweight for a reason. See, flyweight, oh boy. Your fight of the night. Matt Schnell defeats Sumudarji via technical submission, triangle choke, 424 of the second. Um, these two boys went after it. They had a competitive first round. I think it's still leaned towards Sumudarji. The second round of this fight is one of the craziest rounds of action you'll ever see. It's still kind of going Sumudarji's way. Then he hurts Schnell. I believe it was straight left. Uh, drops him at one point. Schnell, the dog in that man. Like, understand, the vast majority of not just humanity, like the vast majority of other fighters under the onslaught that Sumudarji puts on him in this round would have wilted and been gone. Heck, they could have stopped this fight. Like that's how bad this got. He drops him officially once. I think he, he then he staggers him like repeatedly. He kept, because uh, Schnell was so out of it that he's allowing Sumudarji to kind of grip up on his guard. And so, guards up. Mudarji was kind of reaching and was grabbing Schnell's left with his right hand and then would force the guard down and then just turn over and standing elbow to the temple and multiple times rocks Schnell with that just over and over again. Uh, he said, they could have stopped this. And... Schnell wouldn't have been happy, but everyone would have understood the stoppage. If at any point there's another knockdown in that round, this fight's over. He gets hurt and hurt and hurt, never drops. And because this is MMA officiating instead of bo a boxing ref in a box in a similar situation in a boxing fight, this this fight is done. And I'm for the record, that's not a knock on boxing. That's so if you haven't seen this, you understand what, what I'm talking about. Then Schnell lands a kind of a left hook. Backs off Sumudarji for a second. Schnell starts coming forward. Sumudarji re-engages and he gets cracked with a straight right. There's a takedown. Uh, Mudarji plants to throw back. Schnell ducks under double leg. And Mudarji still rocks from the punches. Immediate pass to half guard, immediate pass to full mount, unloads, punches and elbows, commentaries losing their mind. Uh, Daniel Cormier, in particular, uh, goes for the back as Sumudarji starts moving. Sumudarji swings him around from his back, and in transition, Snell grabs a triangle choke, is able to lock it up, puts him to sleep. One of the wildest comebacks ever. One of the craziest rounds one of the craziest rounds ever. That's I don't do round of the year personally, but if I did, like right now, that's the clubhouse leader, and it's not especially close. Uh, wild fight, wild round, wild comeback, fight of the night, easy call. Easy call fight of the night. Uh, this was great. Great stuff from both guys. There's a sequence in the first round where uh, Schnell goes for an omoplata, and... Mudarji stands, pulls him up, and then does, like, the pro wrestling side slam to try and get out of it. Crazy. You never see that. Absolutely crazy stuff. 
again, fight, give these two guys, tack another zero onto whatever they were making, whatever they made for this fight, throw a zero onto that. This was wild. This was great. Uh, heck of a win for Schnell. Simudarji looked darn good. That that offensive output he had in the second round would have stopped pretty much anyone else in the in, in the division, in the UFC, in the freaking world. Like, just a, incredible. Uh, yeah. Uh, next up, the fight I kind of thought would be fight of the night. But Shane Burgos defeats Charles Jordan via uh, majority decision. Two 29-28s for Burgos and then a 28-28 draw. I scored this 29-28 for Jordan. Uh, but 29-28 for Burgos is not crazy. Everything hinges on the first round. Second round is Burgos. He backs Jordan up. He gets a takedown. He gets the back. He spends the majority of that round on the back, threatening the choke, threatening the Suluev stretch whenever, uh, when Jordan would try to base up. Uh, clear, second round, clear round for Burgos. Third round, clear round for Jordan. Jordan had been fighting Southpaw, comes out orthodox for this round, and just, for basically the whole round, Pushes forward, gets in the pocket, works knees to the body whenever they try to clinch up. Just an offensive flurry. Uh, clear, clear round for Jordan. So everything hinges on the first round. And the first round was close. <laughs> uh, strikes on the feet were a little bit leaning towards Jordan, but it's not like Burgos didn't have anything going there. Burgos, at one point, gets a clinch, gets the old cheese... I call it the cheese donkey. It's a takedown from the back. What's the other thing people call it? Uh, the broomstick? I, I heard someone call it the cheese donkey, and that's what I call it now because it amuses me. But you see people go for this all the time. Again, if you're on the back, standing in the, you're in the clinch, you've got like the rear waist lock or whatnot, the rear body lock if you don't want to be around the waist in particular. But you take one of your legs, so hypothetically, like, I'm on your back in the clinch... My left leg goes around your left leg, and then I extend uh, extend it to get behind your right leg. And that's kind of the leverage that goes into that takedown. And people go for it all the time, uh, you know, with varying degrees of success, like anything else. But he hits that, gets the back very briefly. Uh, not very briefly, but gets the back. Little bit of work from there, but Jordan is able to escape. They reset on the feet. I don't object to giving... The long and the short of this is... I don't object to giving Burgos the first round. I don't agree. I scored it for Jordan. But I don't think it's wrong. The 28-28 was interesting. My initial assumption... Uh, on that scorecard was... When they when they announced there was a 28-28... My thought was, okay... Somebody gave Burgos the first two... And then a 10-8 for Jordan in the third. Which I didn't. But I can see the argument. Turns out that scorecard was rounds one and three to Jordan, but the judge in question gave Burgos a 10-8 second. Given how much time Burgos spent on the back in the second, I can see the argument. I'm not sure it's terribly compelling. 
I would not be persuaded. Let me put it like that. I was not persuaded to give Burgos a 10-8 second. Don't even think it really crossed my mind all that much. However, there is something of an outside case to be made, and the reality is this doesn't... That scorecard does not... Would not have changed the outcome of the fight. If the judging question only gives Burgos a 10-9, Burgos still wins the fight just via split instead of majority. This was a good... This was a good fight. Again, upstaged by the flyweights, but a uh, good fight here. So, solid win for Burgos. Hopefully a learning experience for Jordan. I think he was a bit too economical in the first, and I think he was a little bit too... I don't think he was urgent enough to undo whatever scoring goodwill Burgos did via his back control. You can overcome having your back taken in a round, but you need to, I think part of what goes into that is you need to demonstrate a bit of urgency in terms of, I've got to get this back. You can't just assume that, okay, he had my back for a minute or for 90 seconds, uh, but I got out, so that doesn't mean anything. No, it still means something. Um... You've, you've still got to deal with that. Like, you have to over... You are then... Unless you have dominated everything up until that point, and he had not. I think he was doing the better work on the feet, but it wasn't by a giant margin. Then you find yourself at a serious positional disadvantage. You could... You arguably are operating at a deficit after that. You have to overcome it. And I don't think... I don't think he went... I don't think he gave enough credence to the fact that that might be enough to sway the round, all other things going the way they had gone to that point. Uh, but good fight. Women's flyweight. This fight. Um, Lauren Murphy defeats Misha Tate, the unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. I was 30-27 Murphy. Not sure which round they gave to Tate. I, was, I suppose maybe the first was competitive. It was the most competitive of the three rounds. Um, look... Misha Tate's an important figure in the history of women's MMA. She is. And for a time, she was a she had a game that worked well at the high levels. Uh, between her ability and the general state of the division. That time has passed. She constantly comes forward. Pre she predictably comes forward. Is more... That's more important here. If you're predictable, that's a problem. She does not have very good defense. Uh, she enters on straight lines. Her game has always been her takedowns and her ability, her top control that results from them. And she doesn't really have the takedown game anymore, either through injuries or just slowing down or everyone else getting better and whatever combination of these things. I don't think she got it. I don't think she got a real takedown in this fight. Uh, she didn't have the physical strength advantage that she expected to. Lauren Murphy's a very strong flyweight, and every time she tried to come in, she's just getting. If you are getting this outstruck by Lauren Murphy, that's a real problem. Lauren Murphy has decent punching, but her defense and footwork are not great. Uh, she did a. Uh, Murphy did a good job of kind of keeping her back off of the fence here. So kudos for that, but it's not exceptional. Uh, 
she has, you know, again, good enough punching, but her defense is nothing to write home about, and her face gets marked up real easily. Uh, I don't remember the last fight she won purely striking. She eked out the split decision over Andrea Lee more via kind of clinching and grappling and slowing that thing down in that respect rather than just doing the better work on the feet. I thought, she, and for the record, I thought she lost that fight. But if you're just getting outstruck and getting your face this damp, this you know, banged up by Lauren Murphy, there's some there's some serious deficiencies there that need to be addressed. Uh, yeah, she got banged up bad. Her, which I was it, her left eye, I think. Um, yeah, just swollen. Uh, bruised up, like she got kind of tuned up here. She didn't have a whole lot of sustained success. Now, I said last week in the preview that you know Lauren Murphy kind of represents a style that should be. Re- it would not be unreasonable to conclude Misha Tate could have success against that. There's a bit of a caveat there that went unspoken in my preview that I need to address here. Assuming Misha Tate can still operate near her best. I think that's a big problem for her as well. Uh, her takedown game is just not what it used to be, and that was the majority of what she used to have success with. That and just kind of doggedly pushing forward, getting you tired, taking you down, and working from top position. That was it. That's what she had. Kind of all she had. And that's not enough anymore, and hasn't been for several years. Yeah, Lauren Murphy said after the fact, after the fight, that she wants to fight the winner of a fight that's not happening anymore. But um, I think she was like, just, was it Jessica Andrade and Manon Furo? Uh, I think Andrade is back at strawweight. She met someone in Manon Furo. Uh, Fior, uh, Fior, sorry, Fior. Um, uh, that's at the event that's taking place in France later this year. Fior is still on the card. She just needs a new opponent. Uh. If Murphy wants another crack at the belt, she needs another win like that. And, you know, it's so good for her for being re- realistic about that. Still don't give her much of a shot against Valentina, but that's a stylistic thing as much as anything else. Uh, I don't know if Tate wants to stick around at flyweight. Like, whatever my kind of general malaise towards Lauren Murphy's technique and el- other fights... She was highly ranked for a reason. She had a good winning streak going into her title shot, and while I thought she lost a couple of those, they were split decisions. Didn't agree with them, but I also... They weren't... No one that she beat via split in that streak was robbed. I didn't agree. In some cases, I strongly disagreed. But it was never a what-in-the-world-were-you-thinking kind of thing. That she might stick around and try someone, you know, lower ranked, but I'm not entirely sure what Misha Tate wants out of this. She lost at bantamweight pretty badly. She lost at flyweight pretty badly. She's not young. And she's 35. But you know, not exactly young for the sport. And not only is she 35, she's been fighting since 2007. So, I mean, she had the break when she, you know, retired in 2016. So she's, she retired after nine years of fighting. 
came back and has gone one and two cents. Uh, not looking at, I mean, Ketlin Vieja did a pretty serious number on her. You know, Murphy here just busted her up. Uh, it's been a long career. In some respects, and I, I don't know what she hopes to get out of this anymore if she doesn't have a quick path to the title. To say nothing of how badly a fight between her and Shevchenko would have gone. Uh, if Murphy can do this to you, Shevchenko would have done a real number on her. So I don't know exactly what uh, she expects to get out of this. She might retire again. She might try again. I don't know, but I think the title is pretty clearly a long shot at best. That was your main event. Uh, main event. That was your main card. As for the prelims, uh, Punehele Soriano defeats Dolce Lungi and Bulli via knockout in the second round, 28 seconds into it. Nice finish from Soriano. Hits a really nice left hand after blocking a body kick. Follows up with a right. Uh, yeah, good good win for him. Ricky Simone upsets Jack Shore. Shore was a pretty significant favorite. The arm triangle choke, 328 of the second. Uh, Simone has a solid motor. I mean, this guy was keeping up in terms of, like, the, the offensive output and the pace with Marab Dwalish, really. He's got power. Uh, he's a good wrestler. He's a good chain wrestler. That guy's legit. And this was a big... This was always a big step up, uh, a pretty big test for sure. A, again, like, can you hang near the top? That's kind of what Simone was representing here. And turns out, not yet. Shore's a young guy. This was his first ever career loss. I fully expect him to bounce back. But this was a solid win for Simone. Uh, who's now on a five-fight winning streak. Yeah, he'll be doing a fight up instead of a fight down next. Um, Bill Algio defeated Herbert Vern Burns via TKO. This was a retirement. It's not a career retirement. It's retiring from the fight. What, when, when you see someone that, that's retired, that means the fighter does not wish to continue. Um, whether that's physically unable to continue or just has had enough or whatnot, like that, that's what that means. Fighter said no moss. Not to kind of bring that one up, but that's what that means. Um, Burns had a pretty quick takedown in the first. A couple of decent attacks, actually. He had a really tight triangle choke for a while. Uh, Algio got through it, and Burns kind of gassed himself out. Um, he didn't want to come out for the second round, uh, Burns. like His corner talked him into it. Never a good sign. Algio just kind of kept a high pace, kept peppering him. Take, um, when, it, when it was over, like, like the way this ended, there was a takedown. Algio just stands over Burns, lands some leg kicks, and then makes says, I want Burns on the feet. Well, in the at the end of the first round, there was a similar situation. And it took Herbert Burns like 20 seconds to get to his feet. Um, the ref could have waved that one off. He did wave this one off. Burns just... Way too slow trying to get up. Um, after the fact, Burns uh, was indicating that one of his knees was hurt. Uh, and he'd been out for a while. I think. How long was he out before this fight? He had the loss to Daniel Pineda in 2020. So almost two years, actually. It was in August. Um, due to a knee injury. Uh, and if that... So if that got re-aggravated... Uh, I, I hope he's able to recover quickly. 
Uh, solid enough win for Algio. Um, Dustin Jacoby defeated Da Jung via knockout punch uh, 313 of the first. Just a kind of uh, hits a really nice check hook. Who's orthodox and who's southpaw on this one? I believe it was a left hook. That yeah, it was a left hook. That's Jacoby lands. Seems to wobble Jung, and then he follows up with a one-two, and he uh, Jung takes a back bump basically, like he fell flat on his back. Uh, Jacoby seems to be coming on a little bit. You know, he's not lost since returning to the UFC. I believe this was Jung's first UFC loss. This is his first ever loss. Double check that. Yeah, no, no, no. Sorry, not. He had a couple of losses much earlier in his career. His first loss in the UFC ended a winning streak that dated back to 2016. So Jacoby will probably be due. Uh, he, I think they were both lower end top 15 coming into this. He'll be due a bigger opponent next time. Uh, middleweight Dustin Stoltzfus defeats Dwight Grant via unanimous decision, 29-28s across the board. Um, just kind of a lackluster effort from Grant. Uh, better grappling out of Stoltzfus. He was able to kind of force it into, to be a grappling fight. So, not much there. Probably the worst fight on the card. Then kicking everything off, Emily Ducote defeats Jessica Penne via unanimous decision, 229-28-130-27. I was 30-27. Uh, Ducote just better. Just a better fighter. I don't even know which round they gave to uh, Penne, to be candid. Uh, don't have a whole lot else to say about that one. Dakota came in uh, from Invicta, former Invicta champion. Uh, good way for her to debut in the UFC. She had a rough run through Bellator, uh, but seems to finally have kind of settled everything, found her footing. So I'm curious to see what she'll do in the UFC. And that was the event. Again, we lost a couple of fights. Uh, yeah, we lost Philip Rowan, Abubakar, and Magomedov. Um, both both gentlemen had issues. Uh, there were visa issues for Nabaga made off and some kind of an injury to Roe, so. Um, your fight of the night, I mentioned it already, Matt Schnell, Sumudarji. If you watch nothing else from this fight, from this card, watch that fight. Crazy fight. Performances of the night went to Amanda Lemos, Li Jing Leong, Punhele Soriano, Ricky Simone, Bill Alcio, and, and Justin Jacoby. Dustin Jacoby, excuse me, Dustin. So, for the record, that is everyone who got a finish. Apart from Matt Schnell, which sucks, he probably could have used the double bonus. And Yair, because injury-related, I suppose. Um, again, a reminder to all of you people out there, the UFC can easily afford to do this. They choose not to, because there is nothing forcing their hand, but it would not break them financially to always bonus everyone who gets a finish throwing it out there so if you want my full report including clips of finishes and the round by round scoring live it is in the mma zone of 411mania.com all right moving on ufc on espn plus 66 this coming saturday i've mentioned before they're in the o2 arena back in london uh main event heavyweights curtis blades and tom aspinall you know, if Tom Aspinall wins this fight, he might be due a title shot. I know the title picture is wonky right now, uh, given that we're not sure what's up with Francis Ngannou in the UFC. 
Again, it's I, I get that it's a little bit unclear. But if Aspinall wins, that would be he's undefeated in the UFC. That would be number six in the UFC. He has finished all of his opponents. He has finished a steadily increasing level of opposition. I mean, half of his losses, he only has two. His most recent loss was a DQ due to an illegal, illegally called downward elbow. Doing the old 12 to 6. You can't do it. That's a really good run. In the UFC, he's finished in order. Jake Collier, Alan Badeau, Andre Arlovsky, Sergey Spivak, and Alexander Volkov. In two years, this will be a this fight will this this event will take place on essentially his two year anniversary of being in the UFC. He debuted July twenty sixth of twenty twenty. This event is July twenty third of twenty twenty two. So two years, nobody's beaten him. This will be his sixth win. This will be over a top ranked, highly respected heavyweight. Yeah, I mean I don't. Again, I don't know what's going to happen with the heavyweight title, but if he wins here, is it really that ridiculous to say do him and Cyril gone for the interim belt? I don't think that's crazy. I don't think that's crazy at all. Uh, he's really good. Now, standing in his way is one of the few genuinely dominant wrestlers at heavyweight in the form of Curtis Blades. A guy with a long, a very good record. I mean, his only losses in the sport are to Francis Ngannou and Derek Lewis. He's coming off of a very quick win over Chris Dawkins. He beat the crap out I mean, 17 seconds. Like, he smashed him. Uh, he beat Jarzinho Rosenstroke before that. He was beating Derek Lewis before he got predictable on a double-leg entry and rocked into an uppercut. It's a very relevant heavyweight fight. It's a very relevant fight. Aspinall has not had to face a wrestler like this. There's not many wrestlers like this in the UFC, especially at heavyweight. Blades is a dedicated takedown artist. He's got good control. He's willing to grind his way through. He's willing to do damage from top position. It's not an easy fight at all. But I am going to lean towards Aspinall here. Might be foolish. Blades is the more proven commodity. But I, Aspinall's got fast hands, he's got power, he can grapple, he's got takedowns of his own. I don't expect him to shoot necessarily on blades, but that's something there. I, I think pretty highly of Tom Aspinall's upside. I think he wins this. Might be wrong. This might be a, a style that is going to give him problems. Would not be shocked if it is, to be candid. But I'm going to lean towards Aspinall. Uh, middle, uh, sorry, next up was supposed to be a fight between Darren Till and Jack Hermanson. Till had to pull out with an injury. In steps the action man, Chris Curtis. Um, Jack Hermanson, I think we've seen his ceiling a little bit. He Coming off of that loss to Sean Strickland, I have no idea how that was a split decision, just for the record. No earthly idea how that was split. He beat Edmund Shabazian before that because Shabazian struggles with wrestlers and... Jack Ramance is a pretty good wrestler. Uh, 
Curtis is on a long winning streak. He hasn't lost since 2019 when he lost to Ray Cooper III. He's 3-0 in the UFC. I actually think I'm going to pick Chris Curtis here. That's a little bit of a reach, especially given the short notice affair, but I don't have anything against Hermanson, but he struggles if he's worried about your striking. He's got good ground and pound, but his takedowns are a little bit iffy. And his a lot of his striking, he does a lot of just wasting time on the outside, a lot of bouncing, a lot of wasted energy. I'm yeah, I'm gonna lean towards Curtis here actually. Curtis's body work I think might be a problem for Hermanson, so I'm gonna lean towards Curtis and just I am prepared to be very, very wrong about that one. Lightweight, Patty Pimblett versus Jordan Levitt. They are setting up Patty Pimblett in his home country. That's not to say that Levitt is some terrible fighter. I don't think he's a terrible fighter. Um, he is... Levitt is 3-1 and one in the UFC. He's on a two-fight winning streak. Um, I don't know. Pimblet's got tons of defensive holes. I mean, uh, Rodrigo Vargas did a little bit of a number on him before that finish. Uh, Luigi Vendramini did a number on him. And he, he persevered and he got the win, and I give him all the credit in the world for that. But I think Levitt's a bit too one-dimensional in terms of trying to... Uh, grappling is kind of mostly what he's got. I'm going to lean towards Pimblet again. They are trying to... I'm going to be charitable and say they are trying to give Pimblet a bit of time to de continue developing as a fighter. The uncharitable way to phrase this is they are protecting him. <laughs> um, but at the moment, I'm going to be a bit more charitable than that because it's his third fight in the UFC he's not he's fighting someone with a roughly commensurate level of UFC experience and it's not like it's not like he is being of it's like they're not giving him potentially tough stylistic matchups they're I think they're very cognizant of the fact that there's still a long way to go for Pimblet's skill set to develop and you know, this isn't quite the Conor McGregor thing where well let's keep him away from all the wrestlers it's more, you know, third fight in the UFC, big personality in his home country. You know, we're not going to give him the toughest lightweight fight we could, and boy, they could. So. Uh, light heavyweights up next, Nikita Krylov and Alexander Gustafsson. This might be the last stand for Gustafsson, man. He's on a three-fight losing streak. Hasn't fought since July of 2020 when he was up at heavyweight and got armbarred by Fabricio Verdum. Um, his last win was what, Teixeira? In 2017, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Krylov's not exactly in a great spot either. Showed a world of potential. But... And frankly, I thought he beat Glover Teixeira when they fought in 2019. I scored that one for him. I, I thought he won that one. 
But he's lost his last two. Granted, Magomed on Kalaev, top contender. Paul Craig, surprising contender. But he's he's got to find some consistency. The question is really, can I pick Gustafson at this point? Your layoff. How he's looked. I, I can't. I can't pick Gustafson at this point. He gave the two best light heavyweights of his era really tough fights, and frankly, I thought he beat Daniel Cormier. Scored that fight for him. Scored that fight for him on rewatch. Uh, I, I am sympathetic to the case that he maybe should have been champion that time. And he gave John Jones maybe the, I think John still calls it the toughest fight of his career. That first fight between him and Gustafson. Easily the toughest fight of Jones' career. That was even, you know what? That was tougher than the Reyes fight. Like, I've always scored the Gustafson, the first fight between Jones and Gustafson for Jones. But, and the Reyes fight maybe, you know, a lot of people thought Reyes won that fight. It was kind of, doing it live, I scored it for Jones, but my sense of that fight was that Reyes won. That fight was not nearly as difficult physically as that first fight between Jones and Gustafson was. That was a war. If that's not the best light heavyweight title fight in UFC history, it's number two, and it's close. That, that was a really good fight. But at this point, I, I can't pick him. Uh, women's flyweight Molly McCann and Hannah Goldie. Again, we are kind of kind of propping up Molly McCann. Hannah Goldie coming off of her first win in the UFC. Yeah, they're, they're trying to set McCann up here, so and she, she'll probably win. Uh, then at light heavyweight, Paul Craig and Vulcan Uzdemir. Huh. Uzdemir's on a two-fight losing streak. Granted, level of opposition. Yuri Prohachka and Magomed Ankalaev. So, champion and top contender. Possibly next champion and Ankalaev. Is my sense of things. Uh, Craig. You know, Craig hasn't lost since he got knocked out by Alonzo Menafield in 2019. I'm going to pick Paul Craig here, and I'm, I'm, this is a volatile fight. Put it like that. This is a volatile fight. I'm going to lean towards Craig, but Uzdemir might turn his lights out. Would not surprise me at all. Uh, that's the main card. As for the prelims, uh, Mark Jacazi and Demir Hadzevich trying to give Jacazi a win in his home country. Uh, coming off of a win... He's had some rough losses. I mean, some really talented fighters have beaten him. But had some rough matchmaking on occasion. Hadzovic coming off of a win. I'm going to pick Hadzovic, actually. Might be foolish. Foolish might be a bit. I'm going to lean towards Hadzovic. I am. Uh, featherweight, Nathaniel Wood and Charles Rosa. As good as Nathaniel Wood is, I mean, he's coming off of a loss. Uh, he's had a couple of... He looked really good for a while, but... He's had a couple of rougher losses. Um, I think he'll beat Rosa. Rosa's on a two-fight losing streak. Charles Rosa's been, like, Mr. Up and Down in the UFC. So I, I think this is a bit of a bounce-back fight for Wood. But... If he's not prepared, you know, Rosso can beat him. Also at featherweight, Mwakwan Amirkani and Jonathan Pierce. Uh, Mr. Pierce. 
Undefeated at featherweight in the UFC. Like, he only has one loss at featherweight overall. His other losses are either at bantamweight or... No, sorry. Two losses at featherweight. Misread that. His other losses are uh, uh, bantamweight. Where are we here from this one? Are we back at featherweight? He fought Lozon at lightweight on somewhat short notice. I mean, the book's kind of written on Mach 1 Americani at this point. Like, you get out of that first, like, four minutes, you got him. Uh, he's dangerous for the first round, but... I'm going to pick Pierce. I'm going to pick Pierce. Amir Khan is dangerous enough to be a threat to the majority of that division, actually, in that first little bit, but he's not much of a three-round fighter. Uh, flyweight, uh, Mohamed Makayev and Charles Johnson. Makayev, it's a pretty easy call here on the paper as far as picks go. Makayev. Lightweight, Jai Herbert and Kyle Nelson. Is one and three in the yeah they're setting up Herbert. I don't know why Herbert's not that great. I mean these guys are both like one and three in the UFC. I'm gonna pick Herbert again. I think they're kind of trying to prop him up a little bit for his home country, but um, would not bet on that fight. Uh, women's flyweight Victoria Leonardo, who has yet to win in the UFC, losses to Manon Fior and Melissa Gatto. I think Fjord in your UFC debut is a tough draw. Uh, the Gatto stoppage... Doctor stoppage. Is that an eye thing? Can't remember. That or a cut. I forget, I forget exactly, but... Uh, she's fighting Mandy Bohm. Probably lean towards Leonardo, but... Again, that's not a fight I'd feel comfortable betting on. And kicking, well, potentially kicking everything off, Claudio Silva and Nicholas Dalby. Good old Hannibal. Man, if Claudio Silva had been able to stay active, there was a period of time when he was a very good fighter. But this guy debuted for the UFC in 2014, fought twice in 14, did not fight again until 2018 when he fought once. Twice in 19, once in 20, once in 2021. Like, he's good but he's not been able to maintain a consistent schedule. And now, you know, his age is catching up on him. I'm going to leave. So I'm going to pick Dalby. He's coming off the loss to Tim Means, but Dalby's a pretty darn good fighter, actually. Um, when he was cut from the UFC, it was understandable given the streak he was on, but and people forget, like he gave Darren Till a really hard fight. He had a good win. He, I mean, yeah, he came back to the UFC. He had a pretty good run for a while. Um, I'm going to pick him here. And somewhere on this card, we will get Ludovic Klein and Mason Jones. Um, Jones is pretty darn good, actually. He had, a, he had the loss in his UFC debut. But he was beating the crap out of Alain Patrick, and then he did beat the crap out of David. Uh, the, the Patrick fight went to a no contest. Bit of an eye poke, and guys, you got to be careful, because I I am not accusing Alain Patrick of looking for a way out at all. Sorry about that. I am saying that fight was in no way, shape, form, or fashion going Patrick's way, and when he was rendered unable to continue, you know, 
that Jones screwed himself out of a win with that foul. Uh, and he beat up David Onama last time. Klein just got his. And he's one and two. He's two and two. Excuse me, two and two in the UFC. Pretty easy pick for Jones here. Jones is, has some serious upside. All right, that's the event. UFC on ESPN plus 66. I will be covering that Saturday more morning, early afternoon, rather. Early afternoon in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, so please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate it. All right, news of the week. Let's see if we can speed this up a little bit. Your ESPN SB winner for MMA Fighter of the Year is Charles Oliveira. Perfectly acceptable choice. Apparently, they only go July to July. Um, I forget who the other options were. Uh, Kamaru Usman was one of them. Um, Kayla Harrison. What was the other? Um, I forget who the other guy was. Doesn't matter. Um, Oliveira wins. Uh, oh, Volkanovski. Volkanovski was one of them. Anyway, Oliveira wins. And I have no objection to this, for the record. And if we go, like, July to July, so July of 2021 to July of 2022, yeah. It's a really darn good 12 months for Charles Oliveira, yeah? Um, at the same... The UFC announced this on the broadcast. They also announced at the same time, we have official for UFC 280, the presumptive main event. For the vacant lightweight title, Charles Oliveira and Islam Makashev. Um, yes, good, glad. Great fight, that's the fight to make. It's a shame they couldn't just... Uh, you know, I understand potentially stripping a fighter of the title for missing weight. I do. And I do not object to this on principle. Given all the kind of weird shenanigans around that one, I... And you know what? I didn't bring this up um, when it happened, but I'm going to bring it up here because it's relevant to the point. When Daniel Cormier went into the UFC Hall of Fame, which I do not object to, in his acceptance speech, he admitted to grabbing the towel to make weight for... Uh, the fight in question. And the community seems to not, the MMA community at large seems to not care. Now, there's a there's an argument about whether or not he actually broke the rules when he did this, because was there a rule in place in the state in which the weigh-ins were taking place that you couldn't do that? Fair enough, I suppose. But... You know, I mean, there's some video or like one of the last three events. If you look at the weigh-in video, there's like one guy who's like, hey, I'm not actually standing all the way on the scale. <sighs> and we. The long and the short of this is when you consider the extenuating circumstances of some of the uh, weigh-in issues that took place at the uh, at the event where Oliver was stripped of the belt. If we're going to decide that this doesn't matter, um, shouldn't we just give Charles Oliveira the belt back? The UFC can do whatever they want with it. 
the commission, for the record, the commission did not strip Charles Oliveira of the UFC lightweight title. They can't. It's not theirs to strip. They're there to conduct the weigh-ins. The UFC decides what they're going to do with the information. The UFC chose to strip Charles Oliveira. They can just as easily choose to give him the belt back. They won't, but they could. I'm not advocating for the following position, but this has been brought up. Like, if any other, in any other sport, pretty much, especially if you look at individual sports, if a if a athlete confesses to cheating after the fact, there are retroactive repercussions. If a if an Olympic medalist admits to cheating, now they don't go back and retest old samples anymore. Uh, I think they just don't want that particular can of worms hanging over their head at this point. But you see, this actually this is actually a not uncommon occurrence, believe it or not. A because they do retest uh, samples for drugs and whatnot within a certain window. It's really not all that uncommon. It doesn't get a lot of news play. But for someone who wins an event to after the event is concluded, so they've been presented with their medals uh, after the fact. On retest of their of you know uh, of a sample, for them to pop positive and for them to be stripped and for someone else further down in the results on like the broadcast to then be awarded the medal that they now get bumped up to that that's not uncommon. I'm not again. I am not necessarily advocating for this to be operating procedure. I'm saying it happens. You know, look at what happens um, in the world of cycling. Uh, Lance Armstrong admitted to his uh, PED use and everything he'd ever accomplished, especially related to the Tour de France, they retroactively removed. In MMA, a guy going into the Hall of Fame jokes about it and we all go along. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying that the way other sports do them is the right way to do it. I'm not. I'm very clear about this. I don't know what the best way to do this is. I am saying, if that is the standard we're going to hold, there's not really a reason that Charles Oliveira could not still be UFC lightweight champion. That's the point. But those two for the belt, great. Best fight to make, uh, right fight to make. Makashev opens as a slight betting favorite. I can see it. Um, this is one of those instances where it's not about, you know, does Charles Oliveira have the heart to deal with what these other guys are putting on him? That was kind of the question with Poirier, a little bit the question with Gagey, like, can he hold up to their firepower? Turns out, yes, he could. It's weird that he's going to be the underdog for, like, the third fight in a row, probably. For a vastly different reason, though. Oliver was going to be the underdog here in all probability. Again, he's open. Whether or not he closes the underdog remains to be seen. But this is not about, well, does Oliveira have the heart? Does, this, does he have the chin? That's not the question that Islam Makashev asks of his opponents. Islam Makashev asks, can you find offense that impacts me? Can you deal with my control and can you deal with my wrestling? I don't know that Charles Oliveira can. 
Look, Oliver is not going to try too hard to stop himself from being taken down. He's got an active guard, and he doesn't mind that. Whether or not that's a good idea depends on who he's fighting. Against certain fighters, that's paid off for him. Did not cost him that much against Kevin Lee. Cost him a lot against Paul Felder. Cost him a lot against Paul Felder. Didn't cost him that much at different points against uh, Dustin Poirier. Might cost him a lot against Islam Makashev. Makashev is very hard to hit. He The guy absorbs like one significant strike per minute or less. I forget the exact number. It's stupidly low. Nobody hurt. Nobody hits the guy, much less hurts him. And elements of how Oliveira fights make some of what Makashev does easier on paper. Not on, not necessarily in practice, but on paper. Now, Oliveira is an offensive dynamo. If anyone's going to bust up that really, that insanely good defensive number that Makashev has, it's going to be Oliveira. But he can't be comfortable on his back. In this fight, he can't be comfortable. He might be okay in the clinch. He's got good knees and elbows in the clinch. He's, he showed that off a little bit, but... There's a lot of places against Makashev that you just can't be comfortable that he tends to fight a little bit comfortable there. So, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I can understand Makashev being a little bit favored here. I don't know that I'm going to pick him. I mean, I've got a do a little bit of tape and some serious contemplation about that fight, but that's been made for UFC 280. Happy about it. Great fight. Can't wait. Genuinely great fight. Uh, there'll be an Abu Dhabi for that. Um, okay, smaller news bit here. Frankie Edgar is looking to, for his retirement fight to take place in New York at UFC 281. Uh, I've covered a lot of Frank. I've watched the majority of Frankie Edgar's career. I've covered a lot of it. Uh, Dude's a legend. Absolute legend. Uh, wish him nothing but the best. If he wants to go out fighting near his hometown, because he fights out, because he lives and fights in Jersey, um, if, he, if, if that's what he wants, I say let him call his shot there, basically. Like if, if this is going to be your retirement fight, and it probably should. Like, the years and miles have definitely caught up with that guy. Uh, stick him, let him choose his opponent, more or less, you know, assuming it's reasonable, and let him go out in front of basically his hometown. I'm, I'm completely okay with that. All right, uh, let's talk about this real fast, I guess. So during the week, Dana White made a bit of noise on social media. Um, he is somewhat close with the, what are they, the Nelk Boys? Um, it's these guys who do a podcast that his son likes, Dana White's son, and kind of by proximity... They're, you know, friendly. Well, one of them had their birthday over the weekend, over the week, and Dana White gave him a gift that was a bag of $250,000 in cash. This caused something of a stir, as it maybe should. Um, let's do a couple of things here. One, to the people defending Dana White on this. Yes, this is Dana White's money. He can do with it as he pleases. 
Dana White does not come from... Those of you unfamiliar with this, Dana White does not come from money. Some of his success in the UFC was initially a byproduct of his association with rich friends. He was friends with the Fertitas, who are, you know, billionaires. So, and being able to kind of get in their ear a little bit and go, hey, legitimate opportunity with the with this, you know, MMA thing. That's not possible if he's friends with guys, you know, down the street. Fair enough. A little bit of luck there. But Dana White's success and the success of the UFC is not accidental. It is the byproduct of a lot of work on his part. I don't object to Dana White being successful. I don't object to Dana White being wealthy. Um... He, if you weren't around when he was, when the circumstances under which the promotion operated were a little bit different, uh, Dana White was an extremely hardworking guy. I don't know that he does to the same degree nowadays. To be fair, he doesn't have to. Uh, That's just the nature of, if you bust your butt to make something successful, and then you don't have to work as hard at it. That's one of the perks. But Dana White had a crazy work ethic. Constantly doing interviews, constantly working with people, constantly getting things booked, constantly working with fighters at every event, at every press conference. You know, long flights, long hours. I do not begrudge Dana White one iota or one ounce of his success He earned it. He worked incredibly hard. And if... So, not saying he shouldn't be successful. He is paying this guy a birthday gift with his own money. If you've got enough money to throw a quarter of a million dollars at a a guy on his birthday, must be nice. But, you know, money... Money exists to be spent, right? You have to do something with it. And giving it away is certainly something you can do. I mean, there's that famous... They tell a story about, like, Pablo Escobar. You want to go to that? Like, that guy generated... I don't even want to think about how much money that guy made. That That's, that's a whole thing. But he had so much money from his murderous drug cartel and narco-terrorism... He was literally having people under his employ stand on street corners and give it to people. He had nothing else to do with it. He was struggling to hide it. He was... Str- you know, I mean, there's, again, like some of those famous stories, but he would just... He had all this money. Like, okay, put it, you know, wrap it in plastic, put it in a barrel and bury it somewhere. I, I don't know what to do with it. So, I, I don't begrudge Dana White doing this with his own money. It's, it's, that's fine. So to anyone going, you know, how dare he pay this guy that much? You know, it's a birthday gift for someone that he feels close enough to, I suppose, to give them that much money. And it's his money. It's not like he went to the UFC vaults and withdrew this. Dana White makes a lot of money and he's earned a lot of it. So fine here's where it's a pro here's where the problem comes and that 
that gift to this gentleman was more than Davis and Figueredo made for, like, title fights. Figueredo, I think his first, I think his first title win, if we kind of set aside the first Benavides fight. Like, he made, a, I think his purse was a total of 125000 before taxes and paying everyone else. You paid twice what your world champion was making to this guy. That's the problem. Yeah, again, at this point it's on the fighters, but bad optics, nothing else. Bad optics. That's really all I've got to say on the matter. Like again, it's Dana White's personal money. It wasn't paid out of the UFC account. He's free to do with it what he wishes. But that $250,000 could have fine it. I'm going to throw out a take a look at um, Tega versus Rodriguez real fast. We don't get purse disclosures anymore depending on where we are in the world. I'm going to bet. Okay, here's what we do. All those bonuses they paid out, 50 grand each. So 50 and so 100 for the fight of the night. Split between Snell and Shumudarji. So we're at 100. 150 to 250, 350. Okay. First, that $250,000 is more than most bonuses are paid out, is more than most bonuses for a UFC event. Because normally it's 200, right? You get 50 to each for the fight of the night and then the two performance bonuses. More than that. I'm going to guess. That $250,000 was more than the entire prelim card made. So that's Pune, so Soriano, Alungiambula, Simone Shore, Algio Burns, Jacoby Jung, Stoltzfus Grant, Ducati Penny. And if it's not more, it's darn close. Like He dropped an entire preliminary card card salary on this guy. Yeah. Yeah. That is the problem. Not that Dana White was generous to this guy. That's the problem. <laughs> and if not the UFC on ABC, you know, let me back up one more. We go to Dos Anjos and Fiziv. I guarantee, I guarantee that $250,000 was more than was paid out to the prelim card for the Dos Anjos and Fiziv card. I would bet, I would bet darn near anything on that. So, yeah, and again, that's the problem. Not that Dana White was generous, but that his company is not. All right. Uh, that's, that is what I have written down. Let me check Twitter. And if there's nothing that new and crazy that's broken on that front, we will do plugs and get out of here. Nope. Nothing crazy is broken in the MMA world, at least. So, plugs. What did I do last week? In addition to my usual spate of coverage across professional wrestling and MMA, uh, I was on Damn You Hollywood, my movie review podcast. We reviewed Thor, Love and Thunder. I did not care for it. Listen to the full review to know why. 
and hear from other people who liked it a little bit more than me. Uh, that that's that's actually not me underselling. Like, no, they really loved it. And I'm saying a little bit. Like, I think it was genuinely a little bit more than me. Uh, that's myself, Mark Radulich, and David Wright as we got together to review that. This week, again, the usual coverage. That's MLW. Uh, excuse me. Start on Monday. AW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, UFC event on Saturday. I have a movie pre uh, movie review this week. Damn you, Hollywood be, will be myself, Mark Radulich, and Jason Teasley as we review uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. So that came out this week, and we're going to review it. So see you then. That will be Tuesday, per usual. All right, that's everything for me. I thank you all very, very much. As always, we will be back here next week to review UFC on ESPN Plus 66 and to preview UFC 277. Headlined by a rematch between Juliana Pena and Amanda Nunes, an interim flyweight title fight between Brandon Moreno and Kai Kota France. We got heavyweights, because of course we do. We have two heavyweight fights. Why do we have two heavyweight fights? Why are there two? Anyway, full preview of that event next week. Hope you'll be back here. Until then, as always, thank you. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave.